Oh, if only you knew what chaos goes on behind the microphones when <laughs> we're trying to get things together. Suddenly realised I was missing a major part of the script just as that was playing you out. You mean you actually have a script? <laughs> I try occasionally. Good morning, Daniel Mummy. Good morning, Rich. It's, it's been like an age since we've been together. How yes, are you? Yes, it's only two weeks. But yes, I, I'm fine. I'm sort of suntanned, although it's disappearing very quickly. Yeah, it works so. really well on radio, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm just showing off, just showing off. Anyway, it's the movie hour on Lionheart Radio, and we started with Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, um, one of the, the best Disney efforts still. There, were, there was talk not so long ago that there was going to be a remake of it uh, called uh, Maleficent, directed by Tim Burton, but unfortunately I think that's fallen by the wayside. Right, so little factoid that you've got for us on this. Um, yeah, well, there's a couple of factoids. Um, the actress who plays... Um, the Wicked Witch, Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty, is also, if, if you know your early Disney work, she's the same actress who voices uh, the Wicked Stepmother in Cinderella. And I think that actress was actually quite young. She was in her early 30s when she did it. You kind of expect yeah. this sort of cantankerous old crone, but actually <laughs> it's, it's a very sweet-natured young lady. Yes, yes. You never know what's going on with animations. Right. Lots of local films this week, so we're going to okay. have to crack on let's, through them, I let's, guess. Uh, let's dash through. Uh, Monday um, afternoon, 4.30pm, Mars Needs Mums. Now, this is this is an interesting point from a 3D um, side of it, because it's, it's produced by Robert Zemeckis, and it was billed as being you know, the great 3D film of the summer, but it completely tanked in both America and over here. And it doesn't look that good, but it is an important um, point in terms of, you know, people going to see 3D films and the split between 3D and 2D. I suspect that it'll be shown in 2D. In the uh, I think it will be being anic, yes. Yeah, and no, you're not missing anything, effectively. Right, right Wednesday, back to the evening, it's uh, Certificate 12A, Water for Elephants. Which uh, I think we discussed is a kind of Marmite film. If you like old-fashioned melodramas like um, A Place in the Sun and that sort of thing, then I think you'll, you'll like it in a kind of nostalgic way. If, on the other hand, you... You, uh, you find a lot of melodrama quite sort of tedious and a bit overwrought, then for all the sequences when Christoph Waltz isn't on screen, you might fall asleep. But, right. you know, it'll be yeah. perfectly fine. And then Thursday evening, uh, horror film. <laughs> One for you, Insidious. Well, it would be, if it was scary, but the problem with Insidious is that, it, I mean, you have to admire something like Insidious, which is backed by the people who made Paranormal Activity, and they have managed to create something which is pretty slick for just a million dollars or something like that. But the problem is that it is essentially a riff on all those old pedophobic horror films like The Omen and Village of the Damned, and, you know, go and get the original version of The Omen, which is still the, still the, the scariest out of all those films. Well, perhaps second to Rosemary's Baby, but no, it's not worth the while. Right, okay, and if you want to go to the Playhouse this week, the box office number is 01665 510785. Loads of films on at the Mortings, uh, why don't you just have a look at the uh, Should Gazette. we do one-word reviews? Yes, indeed, right. Well, the one I was just going to pick on, because we'll be talking about it in a moment, is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which is on today, tomorrow and Thursday. It's rubbish. Yes. Uh, Monday night, Meek's Cut-Off. Which is interesting. Uh, Wednesday, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Um, intriguing, because it's a, a caving documentary by Werner Herzog, who's very good. And then Wednesday, Skeletons. Oh, uh, yeah, that's an interesting um, low-budget film. It's been compared to With Nell and I, although it doesn't have any of the sort of the drunken debauchery of With Nell and I. It's, uh, if you like uh, Case Histories, which is showing on TV at the moment with Jason Isaacs, then he has a supporting role in this, so oh, go right. and see him. I don't know whether he takes his shirt off, though, so uh, don't, right. don't go in expecting the wrong thing. Okay. Right. Um, let's have a look at the top ten, shall we? Why not? 
And uh, number ten is Double Demol. I'm not sure, to be honest, because it's a, a Bollywood film. There haven't been a great number of reviews. It it looks no half decent, but you never really can tell with Bollywood films. Okay, number nine, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Well, it just clearly hit its target audience in terms of the money that it's taken. I, I think it's all right. It's middle-of-the-road, child-friendly slapstick. It's not much to write home about, but it's it's definitely the kid-friendly offering of the week, which we'll come on to when we get to Transformers. Right. Number eight, and this has done remarkably well, hasn't it? And we've been raving about it. Senna. Yeah, it has. I think it's actually become one of the most financially successful British documentaries ever made, which is fantastic news for the British film industry. Um, I actually might go and see it again, um, simply for the fact that when I saw it in the cinema, it was really Grossing. I don't think you have to be an F1 fan to enjoy it or to find it fascinating. I think that Asif Kapadia, who directed it, has managed to take something which is seemingly televisual and make it cinematic, and it's a really fascinating story with proper characters. Yes, and uh, quite a few of my friends have been to see that, and they're all raving about it. I am going to have to go find some time to uh, to go down. Well, if you want to catch it <coughs> this weekend, so at the Playhouse stop showing it after Sunday. So there's a screening tonight at 6.20, and then uh, there's another one tomorrow at 5 past 1. Right. So those are your choices. And it has to be far better than the bilge they were showing on the holiday company that flew me to Madeira. What but kind of bilge was that? Oh, oh it, was, it was for kids, you know, which is, I guess, what you'd expect on a holiday company flight. Yes. Except going to Madeira, they don't have children going to Madeira, so... Because it's not that sort of resort. It's not um, that kind of holiday. No. So we're all there thinking... What are we doing watching this stuff? Okay. Well, not watching this stuff, as the case may be. But, okay. Uh, anyway, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. I mean, we'll mention this again when we come to Transformers for reasons that will become clear. It's, it is just a big pile of nothing, and it exists only to make money. And uh, arguments about whether or not it's the best or the worst of the series are frankly irrelevant. Right. Uh, number six, X-Men First Class. Which is fine. I mean, I think that it suffers from the usual X-Men problems of there's too many characters and the kind of duplicity in comics where the men get to walk around with buckets on their head and the women have to be in their underwear. But I think Matthew Vaughan's a decent director. He's the guy who made Stardust and Kick-Ass and Blair Cape before that, which is actually a half-decent film. It's a mile... It's a couple of miles better than X-Men 3 by Brett Ratner, which was absolutely terrible. But, no, don't go in expecting a masterpiece. Right. Uh, five, The Hangover Part 2. And it's rubbish. <laughs> We've said that before. Yes. Uh, Bad Teacher at number four. Which isn't funny, and if you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film. I mean, Cameron Diaz's career seems to be going down the toilet, as far as I'm aware. I mean, she, she doesn't... She needs to fire her agent, basically, because she keeps ending up in comedies which don't do anything for her. I mean, you remember those early years when she was in things like The Mask? Which, although, you know, granted, The Mask was quite, you know... It had its flaws and it had its rough edges, and a lot of her role was essentially to walk around and look pretty in a red dress. But she did that sort of role rather well. But there's just something about the, the problem with Bad Teacher is that you know, the story is far too simple, and there's nothing for her to get the grips with. And if you've seen the trailer, you have seen the film. Right. Uh, number three, Green Lantern. <sighs> Which is rubbish. I mean, Martin Campbell, who directed, you know, as we said, you know, Goldmine and Casino Royale, is a very good action thriller director, and he is, he's so much better than this. And, you know, there's, we talked when we reviewed it a few weeks ago about the fact that they had to go back and CGI the costumes because yeah. the fans at Comic-Con weren't happy. The story's very thin, and it's, it's that thing about laugh out loud, but not in a good way. Not in a sort of Flash Gordon knowingly silly way, but in yeah. a Battlefield Earth sort of way of, I can't believe you're taking this seriously. <laughs> I guess, uh, no surprise, number two, Kung Fu Panda 2. Which is... F 
Okay, I, th I think, still think the funniest thing about it is the uh, interview that Angelina Jolie gave in which she tried to say it, oh, it's full of very profound issues, and we had this sort of discussion about uh, do Brad and Angelina sort of take it in turns to do serious and silly <laughs> films? Because yeah. we've got The Tree of Life coming out next week, I think, which is Brad Pitt's new film with Terence Malick, so that's something to look for. I actually got to see um, the first one because it was on TV a couple of weeks ago, oh, right. and I quite enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, it's, it's not, like a lot of DreamWorks stuff, it, it's passable, it, yeah. it's not that memorable, yeah. but it's, it's good fun. Yeah. And Bridesmaids at number one. And I don't think it's quite the comic masterpiece that a lot of people say it is. I mean, it's produced by uh, Judd Apatow, who, you know, has a bad track record, frankly, in comedy, because he's the guy who made Superbad and um, Knocked Up and the 40-year-old version of stuff, which, which should be funny, but isn't. On the other hand, there's been loads of articles kind of analysing it, saying, you know, is it, it's about, you know, women trying to be funny than men. I think those sort of debates are irrelevant and the question is whether or not the film is funny and i think yes it is funny so it works as a comedy but it's not the masterpiece that a lot of people have made it it's out it's been to getting be. good reviews though hasn't it it has been i mean i think a lot of that is is surprise because of judd apatow's i mean judd apatow's back catalogue can be summed up as basically porn obsessed fat bloke ends up with incredibly glamorous woman yeah. to which you kind of say well it's not very fair on the women. So I think a lot of people have been swung over by the fact that he has made a film with a pretty much all-female cast, and you know, Kristen Wiig is in it, who's apparently very big on Saturday Night Live. So I think that's, a that's the reason for a lot of the goodwill behind it. Like I say, it's not terrible, I just don't think it's brilliant. Right, so, recommendations this week, basically anything at Anik, plus... Senna, obviously. Yeah. Um, out of the rest... Well, to be on, probably X-Men and Kung Fu Panda 2. Is the, your right. choices? Because I'm expecting that, you no, know, in terms of kid-friendly offerings, you've probably seen Diary of a Wimpy Kid by now. Right. Maybe it'll get better when we do the new releases. Let's hope. Yes. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Anik. This is Lionheart Radio. Now, I've been so looking forward to doing this as the, the cult film since we found out, or we agreed a couple of weeks ago to, that this would be the cult film this week. And I've right. been watching the trailers and realising what appalling hairstyles people had back in those days. <laughs> you look like a sort of a young kid on Christmas Eve waiting for Santa yes, to turn up. Yes, yes. Well, really here. <laughs> we should say, we almost was sponsored by Brill Cream, wasn't it? <laughs> Yes, in some cases. Well, perhaps not. Well, perhaps not New Britain's case, but... Uh, <laughs> you put a bit too much on. So yeah. Shall we, uh, we set the scene with the trailer? I think so. MGM presents Westworld. Your attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. We have you on grid five, over. It consists of three worlds of the past. Locking in now. Worlds where you can live out your every fantasy. There's Roman world, the lusty, decadent delights of Imperial Pompeii. Notify ground crews. Medieval world, chivalry and combat in 13th century Europe. And Westworld. Lawless violence on the American frontier of the 1880s. Each resort is maintained by reliable computer technology and peopled by lifelike robot men and women. Let's stand by for resort activation. Ready on six, on five, on four, on three, on two. Activate now. Robots are programmed to provide you with an unforgettable vacation. Dinner at 7, breakfast at 6.30. Get lunch on your own. Don't look like much here, but we have everything. You mean to tell me he's a robot? What'll it be? Uh, vodka martini. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. Many elements of the Delos Resort are potentially dangerous. That's part of the appeal. Go on. 
You say something, boy. Kill them. Your move. Our technology is designed to provide all this in complete safety. In Westworld, frustrations find release. Desire ends in satisfaction. Let me handle it. And all in a controlled environment. That's not supposed to happen. We know you'll enjoy your stay. The ultimate resort. Let me do it this time. Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. I'm shot. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh, my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. MGM, starring Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin, Westworld, the ultimate resort. Boy, do we have a vacation for you, for you, for you, for you. Oh, I do love that. I really do. And I had great fun doing the uh, the trailer for uh, for today's programme. Yeah, Although you... I, I sent it in to Anne uh, just after the uh, comms computer had broken down. It's got the <laughs> bit where nothing can ever go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. And <laughs> so that's not funny, Richard. <laughs> Yeah, it is a really great trailer, and uh, thanks a lot for putting <laughs> thanks a lot for putting that together. So, uh, background information: um, Westworld, nineteen seventy three. Well, action sci fi western hybrid. Uh, the debut film by Michael Crichton, who is um, probably better known as a novelist because he wrote the original novels on which um, Jurassic Park is based, because that was made into a film by Steven Spielberg. Before this, he'd written the uh, the Andromeda Strain, which was made into a film of the same name by Robert Wise, who's the guy who made The Haunting and West Side Story and the first Star Trek film. Um, may, he made a few... He had a kind of old career, because he'd made a few films after this, the best of which was... Um, have you ever seen The First Great Train Robbery? Yes. With yes. Sean Connery and Donald yeah, Sutherland yes. with those hand, with those kind of handlebar moustaches. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Um, set in the 1850s. Um, Crichton apparently was inspired to create Westworld after going to Disneyland and he um, he walked past the section that was there in Disneyland at the time might still be there now of uh, a robotic Abraham Lincoln reciting the the Gettysburg address and he'd kind of do it on a loop every 15 minutes and Crichton was so fascinated that he kind of stayed there watching yeah. it over and over to kind of wait for it to break down <laughs> so, to speak. so it had a budget of about of about one and a quarter million dollars, kind of, you know, varying depending on marketing. And it is notable for being the last film ever made by MGM before it closed its releasing arm. And, of course, that's pertinent now considering the recent legal wranglings yeah. with the collapse of MGM and the, the uncertain fate of, you know, the new Bond film and yeah. The Hobbit. Of course, The Hobbit has actually started shooting now, and though that's going to get released in 2012 and 2013, I think. So that bit sorted. But it is yeah. it's at an interesting point in the history of a company which had been once the best studio in the world. So this, the plot is, uh, it follows two men, played by uh, Richard Benjamin and James Brolin, who is the father of Josh Brolin, who's uh, an actor who was in No Country for Old Men and True Grit most recently. He works Those up. are the two with the dodgy hairstyles. They're the two with the dodgy hairstyles, yeah. Um, they come to the futuristic resort of Delos, um, which is in the middle of the desert somewhere, where for $1,000 a day, they can relive the past, and there's three worlds that they can choose from. There's Roman world, where they can basically sit around, lounging around, eating lots of grapes. Medieval world, where there's lots of bank 
banquets and fair maidens that they can chase, and Westworld, which is the old west complete with gunfights and whorehouses. Um, the twist in this resort is that it's populated by extremely lifelike robots who sort of all play the background characters. And in the case of Westworld, you can have shootouts with these characters where they can get killed, but you can't, because all the guns are done with sort of light sensitivity, so that yeah. they, it's sort of shot. You get the idea. And eventually, we start to notice little things going wrong with the machines, you know, kind of reacting badly to temperature or pressure or the speech malfunctioning, until one of the robots, played by Yul Brynner, completely malfunctions, and then everything starts to go wrong. <laughs> uh, I was getting, no, resisted doing the joke again. So, um, when you... Whenever you get a film that's based on a book, um, you often get the kind of people coming out and saying, you know, well, I'd read the book and the film didn't live up to it. I mean, you must have had that experience. Uh, yes, oh, yeah, well, most of them usually. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, though, that when um, novelists try their hand at filmmaking to sort of redress the damage of that, you normally don't get very good results. And I'll give you a classic example. When The Shining was made by Stanley Kubrick in the early 80s, Stephen King had very mixed opinions about it. He said, no, you, you, you deviated from my novel so much. No. And he eventually ended up making a miniseries in the 90s, which kind of stayed close to his work. And though it was more faithful to the book, granted, but it wasn't nearly as scary or as intimidating or memorable as Kubrick's work and it's the whole idea of you know just because the source material might have something interesting doesn't mean that a filmmaker can't come along and well either make it his or her own or do something more interesting with it so it's often the case that when a writer kind of goes behind the camera whether it's a screenwriter yeah. or a novel writer they kind of focus so much on the words because that's what they're used to that's their beaten potatoes that they don't have enough of a visual sensibility to actually make good films as opposed to good shots of people talking all the time um it's made doubly different by westworld because of the sheer amount of genres that are involved i mean if it's effectively every single genre except for rom-com musical and gothic horror it's kind of sandwiched <laughs> into 90 minutes and it does shift from kind of from western to action adventure to conspiracy thriller towards the end and there are sort of there are references to different horror films along the way the most notable of which is there's a 1959 french film called eyes without a face about a mad doctor who is whose daughter's been involved in a car crash and he's trying to reconstruct her face by effectively stealing other people's and it's uh, i mean it's it doesn't sound particularly scary if i said it's a black and white film in french in which the car is a citroen 2cv but when you actually see the face transport sequences it's absolutely terrifying and that's the yeah. film from which we get um or like all the on the punk records of the white um, mask sort of covering the face which is a bit like phantom of the yeah. opera but in a slightly more scary way um, so, while you have all these kind of conflicting elements in Westworld in terms of the genres, and while it never entirely comes through with the goods in terms of being, you know, a seamlessly perfect film, yeah. there is more than enough in it which makes it an interesting and an entertaining cult effort. I'm doing, I'm being very careful not to say anything that would offend you, because I know how much you love this. <laughs> so... The first thing in its favour is, I mean, we talked about the special effects of The Thing a couple of weeks ago, because that's where yeah. you have to start with The Thing. And in many ways, you have to start with Westworld's technical innovations. I mean, it was the first film to utilise pixelated graphics, and there are... There are certain sections of it in which you see the events transpiring from the androids or the robots' point of view, depending on what you want to yeah. call them. You could almost call it the Tron of its day, in the sense that you have, in the same way as Tron, you have the, sh the short sections in Tron which are animated, and it's like being in a video yeah. game, but they're only like 20-minute sections, but people forget that it's not the whole film. In the same way, you have about two or three minutes worth of time in which you have the pixelated vision. And the way they did that, if you're interested, um, they shot the thing on celluloid, but then they scanned those portions of the film into a computer and processed it digitally, so it came out of ones and zeros instead of chemically. And as a result, you create an image which is very deliberately blurred and distorted. And 
the fact that you can't quite see what's going on in this case, yeah. it actually makes the Yul Brynner character, whose perspective you're seeing, it makes him seem all the more merciless, that the fact that he's not even letting you see yeah. the kind of the carnage that he's wreaking, you have to fill in the blanks with your own mind. But, you know, the good old-fashioned effects are pretty good as well. There was, uh, there's a sequence in it where Richard Benjamin tries to get rid of the Yul Brynner robot by throwing acid into his face, and the way they achieved that was they mixed indigestion tablets into Yul Brynner's makeup, and then threw water at him so that you just kind of... Yeah. And it's a really good effect because you actually see sort of sort of steam coming off Yul Brynner's face and it's not being pumped in through, no, cables or anything like that. Just the creativity that used to have to go into special effects. I mean, some days now, I guess you just get the CGI machine out and off you go, don't well, you? No, but, uh, I think it's a bit harsh because there is, there is genuine craft in CGI when it's yeah, done no, properly. Yeah. But no, it's, it is, off, the, the thing about organic effects for me is that the fact that if you're somebody like Rob Bottin or Rick Bacon or all these great makeup artists that, again, we discussed when we looked yeah. at the thing, check the podcast when it gets up, very often with those kind of makeup effects, you're having the director and the special effects artist working alongside because the special effect actually has to, it has to have some space on yes. the set as well. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing blue screen, then it's often a case of you just shoot and people yeah. say, okay, look at this eyeline now and then look at that yeah. and then look at this. And then they'll go to the boffins and say, right, I'd like a wave here, I'd like a gun going off here, I'd like yeah. an explosion here. And there is no incentive to make it physical. I mean, like I say, there is artistry in CGI yeah. when it's done properly, but there is something to be said for physical effects just yeah. for the sake of, you know, getting it done in camera because it is yeah. where well done. Michel Gondry is another example yeah. of a director who does that very well. Um, the other special effect I'd like to pick up on is the sequence of Yul Brynner's face being removed. And I don't know uh, if... It's very impressive. It's isn't creepy, it? isn't it? Because yes. you, I mean, you don't actually see it being lifted off and yeah. sort of taken out in the manner of something like Heartless, in which someone's yeah. head does get taken off. But it's... It's very, very lifelike. And the, the kind of the... Yeah. Seeing the wiring on the inside, it, and you no, know, it, it's really... It's not terrifying, but there is something rather un uneasy about and it. And again, of the era that it was filmed in. It's uh, very it, clever. It is very clever. Um, I think in the end, the big impact of Westworld is that you can see its influence on subsequent films, particularly in the thriller genre. I mean, obviously, Jurassic Park is the big thing, because Crichton essentially reworked the basic premise of it's a big, elaborate music part that goes wrong. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of, for all that's been written about Spielberg, I think it's one of his very best films. And I, mean, I think that Spielberg is always at his best doing light-hearted popcorn blockbusters like Jaws yeah. and Close Encounters and Indiana Jones and, yeah. and Jurassic Park. Um, you could also argue, I suppose, that Yul Brynner's gunslinger was the terminator of its day, in, both in the sense of being a relentless killing machine and in terms of the special effects. And it has that same, that same slightly jerky mechanical posture that the first Terminator had. You remember in the end of the first Terminator film, where um, Linda Hamilton and um, the, the guy who's playing her, her lover slash husband from the, from the future, they're running away from the Terminator after it's come out of the fire and there's that stop motion sequence of it coming yeah, down the yeah. corridor and they're trying to close the metal door and it's really scary, even though it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the kind of stop motion that Ray Harryhausen did during Clash of the Titans, so it is jerky and it is strange, yeah. but it does feel physical. Um, and that was Stan Winston. There is also a little bit of a Blade Runner influence in there, reference in there, because they talk about, you know, robots being completely indistinguishable from humans and yeah. some of them being designed as sex models, because there's the line in Blade Runner about uh, Pris being a basic pleasure model. So there is that. That's <laughs> yes. not touched upon in any great detail, yeah. but it's, if, you, if you're a sort of sci-fi nerd like me, then you kind of spot these references if you go along. 
Um, the various worlds of the Delos complex. We talked about the film sort of dipping in and out of genres, and that's one of the that's one of the ways in which it manages to do it. Because it thinks, okay, we now need a bit where there's uh, there's kind of uh, peace and music. Let's go to medieval world just randomly, <laughs> yeah. or, or now we need a scary bit. Let's get back to Westworld. So, yeah. and in the end, it does dabble a little bit too much because you get so distracted by all the subplots, like about the the fat businessman who organises a joust with the Black yeah. Knight, which in the manner of so much in this film goes horribly wrong. That when the Yul Brynner stuff, when Yul Brynner starts hunting Richard Benjamin, it's never quite as tense as it could be. I mean, it's still yeah. pretty tense. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do feel intimidated by him. I mean, who doesn't feel intimidated by <laughs> Yul Brynner when he's playing <laughs> villains? Because he's really great. But it's, you know, it, you do get a bit distracted. In terms of the ideas that Westworld raises, I mean, first off, it's the idea of the perfect machine going wrong, and within that, mankind's sort of increasing dependence on technology coming back to back to bite them in the backside. Effect. Yeah, and it's everybody's big fear, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Can we control the computers? Well, Can in we the case of the ones robots? at Lionheart, we can't. <laughs> yeah, one of them is just going to walk off least, across the room. At least it turned itself off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. This has obviously been, this is obviously an area that Stanley Kubrick had, had visited previously yeah. in Doctor Strange Love in 2001. He'd later do it again in Full Metal Jacket. But the difference being that whereas Kubrick's approach was much more sort of conceptual, as in what would it be, as in what are the moral implications of machines going wrong and taking over, and in the case of Hal, killing us, yeah. Crichton is much more mechanical he's much more interested in what the destruction of the world would look like and how it would play out as opposed to the moral implications yeah. behind it i mean in many ways Crichton is closer to the original novels of arthur c Clarke, which inspired 2001 i mean you remember the there's the there's the ending of 2001 in the novel version in which uh, the kind of the reborn star child dave um kind of leads humanity off into a new era of technological advancement whereas yeah. in the film it sort of ends on a more ambiguous note with him yeah. just looking over the earth in wonder Indeed, and, think, yeah. and no you can argue amongst yourself which ending is better to that end now the idea of the perfect machine sort of going wrong you have the Delos Resort is effectively being a mirror of the robots within it because it's presented as something which is you know, a state-of-the-art and massively sophisticated and the, the greatest technology available. But actually, if you look slightly below the surface, it's a very fragile creature. It's you know, reliant on constant input. It's highly sensitive to even slight changes in pressure or humidity yeah. or temperature. You've got long sections of the film which consist of scientists staring at screens and kind of talking to each other as they're kind of making all these little tweaks and re reading out the renegades and of course the sequences at night where everyone has gone to sleep and they kind of wheel the robots into these trucks and basically go and fix them in what yeah. resembles a massive A&E ward. <laughs> it's a great, yes. great uh, shot that, isn't it? Yeah, yes. and it's, I mean, it reminded me in a way of... Um, do you remember we were talking about If a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Um, if you, the third film in the Mick Travis trilogy called Britannia Hospital, there is a sequence towards the end where uh, Graham Crowden's slightly mad professor is unveiling what he calls the future of the human race and he talks about you know man man's intellect being constrained by body and then he unveils this massive artificial human brain which is a hundred thousand times more powerful and it starts reciting the, the what pieces of work is a man speech from hamlet it's really creepy so you have those things in terms of the mechanic the mechanics of what a rebellion would be like you've also got within that mankind's nostalgia for the past and there is a comparison in a way with deliverance which if you've been following this program for a while paul and i just kind of talked about it for ages because we love that film it's the same idea of characters make a trip to this resort to escape from the mundanity of their lives and it's the idea of in the case of deliverance being at one with nature but still being civilized as whereas in westworld it's you know getting to live in the old west and know to 
to shoot people and to get off with girls and to blow up banks, but without any of the kind of the actual threat of violence or yeah. death or hard work or pestilence that comes with it. I mean, it's like the thing about Alfred Hitchcock saying uh, drama is reality with all the dull bits cut out, and it's that's you know, the kind of lifestyle that they've got. Within that, you've got a comment about the sort of the compartmentalization of violence and you know, virtual reality, which I think had just started to take off because. In the early sections of the film, when you no, know, they're having all the gun battles with yeah. Yul Brynner, and you no, know, he's you no, know, he gets shot, but then he gets up again a few minutes later, and they repair him and stick him back together, and then <laughs> he gets shot again, and they have to do it all over. When that's happening, Richard Benjamin and Josh Brolin just sort of firing off the guns, will he nearly think, yeah, yeah, you know, none of us can get any hurt because we can't shoot yeah. each other, and you no, know, if we get sent to jail, we'll just blow it up because it, now that whole sequence is effectively being put in jail as the setup to a big gag rather yes, than anything yeah. more serious. But when things actually start turning nasty and you get reality intervening. Benjamin can't practice what he preaches and he ends up running away and it's the whole idea of, you know, if, if you're willing to go around shooting people when they're not real, yeah. then you can't have that sort of duplicity when, it, when reality actually intervenes and you have to base your moral compass on reality rather than what you just feel like doing when it's not real. So, Within it, so you have all these great ideas going on in Westworld. I think they're somewhat undercut by the way that the film's directed. I mean, Crichton's a good writer, I'll admit that, yeah. but he is not, certainly in terms of creating suspense, he's not a brilliant director. I mean, it looks pretty professional because it's, you know, shot on MGM stand stages, which was still one of the best in the world. It's shot in anamorphic lenses, which is what John Carpenter used to use on his films, so you get the very good widescreen look. I mean, certainly compared to the Clonus horror, it looks incredibly slick. Yeah. But the tone is so uneven that even in the bits when you think oh this is really working you have that sort of niggle of disappointment of it's great but i wish the whole film had been like that yeah and that's sort of complemented by fred carlin's soundtrack which kind of alternates between sort of very quiet background music that you almost don't notice tinkly and then suddenly it turns into bernard herman with bam 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 <laughs> that sort of thing so just to start rounding it off, I think the performances are a mixed bag. Yul Brynner's great. He is, he, he is really good in pretty much anything. I was listening to um, Radio 2 again the other night, and they were they were doing a programme about Rodgers and Hammerstein, because, of course, he appears in The King and I. Yeah, which and, he did very well. And hearing him sing... I mean, I'm not a Rodgers and Hammerstein fan, but he, hearing him sing Tis a Puzzlement is quite, yes. a, it's quite a good experience. The, the, there's an interesting in-joke in his characterization because his costume is almost exactly the same as the one he wore in The Magnificent Seven. And I think they actually sourced out, so it was like him yeah. sort of having a piss take at his past because that's <laughs> one of the roles that made yeah. him famous. And he does exude menace and tenacity to the point at which John Carpenter actually used him as the basis for Michael Myers yeah. in Halloween. So, you know, there's, there's, that's a compliment as far yeah. as anything goes. I don't think his co-stars are quite as good. I mean, James Brolin... I think his son is the better of the two actors. And, you no, know, he, he's a perfectly decent presence, but he doesn't have much to do. And Richard Benjamin, I mean, he, he looks good sort of wandering around Amos with, with, with that sort of massive moustache, but he can't quite carry the film on his own. And when it gets to the section in the dungeon, it does start to fall apart a bit. Um, so, but in all in all, you know, the campy visual style of Westworld, is, it's, it's dated a bit and it doesn't quite execute it as well as it could be. But as... An ideas-driven thriller with very good special effects and a lot of really good substance yeah. at the heart of it. It does its job, it works, it's still very entertaining, and it's a good, solid 90-minute cult film. It's good fun. It it's is really good fun. good fun. Right. Shall we have some music? Why not? From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Be like Paperboy Reed and come and get it. 
I think we were mentioning Kronos, weren't we, at some stage during the uh, the review, and that's our cut film next week. We were. Kronos, which is the debut film by Guillermo del Toro, the Mexican filmmaker who is best known now for directing Pan's Labyrinth, but this is where he started off. It's a really chilling, strange retelling of the vampire films. And I'm glad you got to pronounce that name and not me. <laughs> anyway. Guillermo del Toro. Yes. It's going to be blockbuster month, isn't it? Where's well into blockbuster season? Um, what do you want to start with? Well, let's start with um, with with Transformers. But oh, okay. uh, I heard uh, Tom Davidson absolutely uh, slamming this one in his show on Tuesday night here on Lionheart Radio. Right. And I thought before you had a go, I was going to address the balance. So right. I was down in Southampton yesterday and picked up um, their local listings magazine, and they've got a reviewer called Drew Bridger who says, and then you can respond. After the laughing stock Revenge of the Fallen made of the franchise, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Dark of the Moon could be just one more, more of the same from Michael Bay, turning what was once a legitimate classic animation into something that involved characters trying to appeal to the young generation and failed. Also, it had Megan Fox. The good news, Dark of the Moon looks like it could well have corrected all the mistakes the franchise has made thus far, and it doesn't star Megan Fox. Over to you, Daniel. Can I just ask, was that... Is that a review of the film, or is that a preview based upon trailers and so forth? Because um, that's a listings magazine as opposed to a review magazine. Yeah, um, I think it's... Yeah, it's, I think it's meant to be a review. Yeah, just the way it's phrased yeah. is like, could have addressed, yes. as opposed yeah. to has redressed. Okay, let's get it out of the way. Transformers Dark of the Moon in 3D, which is the new film by Michael Bay. <sighs> Who is quite possibly the worst filmmaker in the world at the moment and no it's the third film based on the hasbro toys and the story is story um in 1969 the apollo 11 missions go to the moon and they found some alien robot parts on the moon and now the robots have sort of have returned to earth to get back this thing called the ark and there's going to be one final showdown between the, the autobots and the decepticons to stop megatron taking over the world but none of that is relevant i mean essentially one of the things that a lot of Transformers fans have been saying in defense of this film is, oh, well, this one actually has a story. But it's like, you know, the Pirates 4 was like, oh, it's based on a novel. Yeah. You took the title from a novel and then you made <laughs> it up as you went along. There's a plot for about 20 minutes, and that plot itself is a rip-off of Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel, or Isaac Asimov and so forth. And then it just gets back into what it was before. Um, people often say to critics when, you know, people like you and I talk about action movies on that sort of thing, like, oh, don't take it seriously, it's just meant to be a bit of fun. Well, the problem with Transformers is that it isn't fun. It is stupid, boring, loud, incoherent, racist, misogynist, and without any redeeming feature at all. And I mean this, seriously. If you go and see it, shame on you. Right. Let me give you, first off, it's far too long. It's two hours, 34 minutes long, which is 15, yeah, minutes, a long one. 15 yes. minutes longer than 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that went from the beginning of man to the birth of a new species, and this just goes for two and a half hours of people hitting each other. Um, the final battle sequence alone goes on for an hour. And no, any editor worth their salt will tell you no battle sequence should go on for 60 minutes because no matter how good a battle sequence is, you often can't tell what's going on. In the case of Michael Bay, it's doubly so because he keeps cutting every two seconds because he can't tell a story. You've got the terrible acting. I mean, Sheila LaBeouf turns up again. He's the charisma vacuum. They get John Turturro, Francis McDormand, and John Malkovich on to do a bit of acting in inverted commas to pick up the check and uh, losing all credibility that they had during their work with the Coen brothers. The biggest problem, however, with Transformers for me is the sexualization of it. Because, no, Transformers, as the reviewer's yeah. talking about, you know, started off as a kid's toy. Then there was a kid's animation in the 80s. Then there was an, an animated movie. You know, it's a toy about robots hitting each other. And, you no, know, it's a kid's toy. I don't have any problem with a toy. But what Michael Bay has done is thinking, okay, well, we've got to turn it into a film. 
about you know, a kid's toy, but in order to make our money back, we've got to attract the teenage audience. So what we'll do is we'll put in a load of pseudo-pornographic visuals so that all the, the kids can kind of watch the big explosions while the dads can leer over the girls. Mm, that's so not good. It yeah. isn't good. It's not just not good. It's frankly unacceptable. I mean... There's, we mentioned that Megan Fox isn't in this, in this one, because I think at the end of the, sometime last year there was controversy about her calling Michael Bay Hitler, and no, suffice to say she didn't get cast in the new one. So in this one, the, the love interest, so to speak, of Sheila Booth is played by Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, who is an ex-Victoria's Secrets lingerie model that Michael Bay met when he was shooting an advert. And as an indication of the film's attitude to women, the opening shot of Rosie Huntington Whiteley's character is a sequence of her walking up a staircase with a camera focusing on her backside. That's no, yes. I, yeah. see, I can see why you don't like the film. Well, yes. yeah, but the yeah. point is that it's, it's putting across a view of women, of basically women are like cars, they're just objects to be stared at and exploited. And I'm just, it's just not good enough, let alone good enough for a 12A certificate film. Then you've got all the other problems about, you know, it's the fact that it's in 3D, which is pointless. You've got the racist robots coming back from the first one with the Jamaican adverts to say, we don't do reading, which is completely unacceptable. And it is an early candidate for the worst film of the year. It is so bad, it makes Pirates of the Caribbean 4 look half decent. And I'm not kidding. And there was me thinking Tom was going to outdo you with slamming the film. <laughs> so you've, you've given back as good as he gave, so... Uh... I think I'm going to have to now to download your review and his review and sort of... Well, you'll have a, a bout. We'll, again, we'll, head uh, to head bout. we'll splice them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who can do the worst review of the year or the most critical review? Well, yeah, because yeah. he might be covering for you in a few weeks, so why, yes. don't, you, why don't you make a trailer of the two of us? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it's going to be great. Now that we've got that out of the way, can we do proper films? Yes. Larry Crown. Okay, new film directed by and starring Tom Hanks, who hasn't directed a film since They Think You Do in 1996, which is, I don't know, kind of, it was a film about one-hit wonders. Um, so he plays um, the title character who works at a sort of Walmart-like store in America, although it's not Walmart for branding and copyright reasons. Uh, he gets fired, he's a middle-aged guy, he gets fired, he enrolls in training college for a fresh start, he ends up taking a public speaking class and develops a relationship with his teacher who, as so often happens in the real world is played by Julia Roberts. Yes. So, on the one hand, it's you know, certainly in the week that it is with Transformers, it's nice to have a comedy in cinemas which actually has you no know, proper, which has middle-aged characters yeah. and, you know, attempting to have a fresh start and actually finding a love along the way. The problem is, however, that it's not that original and it's not quite as funny as it needs to be. I mean, there is the initial contrivance that you have to get over, which is, I don't believe that Julia Roberts is a teacher. Because she just look, even though you know, she's supposed to be this downbeat teacher who's on the skids and isn't interested anymore, she still looks like she's been in the makeup trailer for three hours. I mean, Julia Roberts is a perfectly decent actress. Yeah. But, I mean, you look at, there is a tendency throughout her sort of lighter, frothier roles of, I'm Julia Roberts, who just happens to be playing such and such. It's like the thing at the start of Pretty Woman, where... You're far too glamorous to be a hooker on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes, true, yes. I mean, with Pretty Woman, it yeah. sort of gets away with it yeah. because it, that's based on a fairy tale and uh, there are yeah. uh, some fun. So, but in, so you have that initial contrivance that you have to get over. And as the film rolls on, there are, you know, there are various sort of comic set pieces which don't quite work. I mean, compared to Transformers 3, it is a masterpiece. <laughs> but I think if you're going in expecting a really bubbly, effervescent comedy, you might be disappointed. It's not getting very good reviews, is it? No, I mean... It, I think one of the problems is that Tom, ha act when actors 
direct or produce films, you often end up with, with very actorly films in the sense of lots of yeah. people talking and not much in the way of drama. And I think that Tom Hanks is a little bit better than that, but he doesn't have the great sort of eye for, for directing comedy that somebody like Steven Spielberg or Ron Howard does. Yeah. I remember there was, I was watching a documentary the other day on uh, Last Crusade, which for me is the best of the indie films, and there's, and Steven Spielberg talking about all the kind of little comedic interludes, like there's a sequence in the tank where the shells are going off, and then it cuts to yeah. Sean Connery and Denham Elliott with their hands over their ears, and it's just little bits and pieces like that where you think you've taken a situation which is interesting and then put a lot of good comedy in it. And obviously it's not Indiana Jones this, but it's, it's funny, but it's not as funny as it needs to be. Okay. Right. I'm trying to be kind, because yeah. it's, it's better than Transformers. Well, a film that has been getting rave reviews is As If I Am Not There. So yeah. what's this one about? It's a Bosnian film, um, first film by uh, a lady called Juanita Wilson, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, based on testimonies from the International Criminal Tribunal at The Hague, which of course has been in the news recently because of Gosh, the, this is powerful the arrest of uh, Ratko Mladic. Yeah. Um, it's set in the Bosnian War of the early 90s, and we follow a woman called Samira, who is a school teacher in the, the Bosnian countryside, her village is overrun by Serbian soldiers who uh, shoot the men and keep the women either as labourers in the case of the older ones or sex objects in the case of the younger ones. It is a very difficult film. Um, it's a very tough subject matter, obviously, because it's about the exploitation of women yeah. and it's about war and uh, hardship and so forth. And I think it deserves credit for handling it in a... In a in a way which stays true to its convincing. I mean, there is a comparison in a way with Savage Grace because it's a very uncompromising way of telling the story. Yeah. But ultimately, that being so uncompromising is the only way you could be true to the material, even if it, it has sort of little flaws around the edges. The, I think the thing that it's most comparable to is, did you ever see Lars von Trier's um, Mandalay? No, I don't think uh, I did. Lars von Trier is a Danish filmmaker. He's he made two films um, about sort of slaves enslaving themselves with a Mandalay which had um, Nicole Kidman in, sorry, Mandalay which had Bryce Dallas Howard in and Dogville before that which had Nicole Kidman, sort of Brechtian films, but they, they did approach the idea of women being enslaved and sort of coming to terms with their status as slave to the point at which in a certain way they embrace it. Now I don't think it's, it's, it approaches the subject in the same way, but it's that same uncompromising tone that you get with a lot of Von Trier's work. So it isn't going to be for everyone, yep. but I suspect it will find an audience on the Art House circuit. So well worth going to see, but not for the faint-hearted. It isn't for the faint-hearted, no. And it's I mean, probably going to be a Tyneside cinema job, this one, is it? Yeah, or you might have to travel for it, because I don't think the Tyneside is showing it this week, but they may show it next week. Okay, right, uh, The Conspirator. New film by Robert Redford. We've got, it's an interesting coincidence, you know, we've got two big foreign language films coming out, and we've got two films that are directed by people who are primarily actors. Yeah. Although, in a way, Robert Redford has sort of become more yeah. of a director than an actor is so, I mean I've seen um, the other one um, doing the uh, interview circuit or like Tom Hanks that's the name yes. he's been doing all these sort of chat shows I haven't seen uh, Robert Redford on them so maybe yeah. it's just because I've been away for a week but. possibly I mean it's it's an odd film because it, it sort of it it was made last year and there were there was talk of it getting Oscar nominated because it's about no it's a political subject but it sort of it sort of faded from view and a bit like the messenger a couple of weeks ago it's it's getting released now as if to say well Let's put it here and hope. So it's the new film by Robert Redford, who, like I say, is more famous as an actor, but he does have pretty good directing chops. I mean, he may he won the Oscar for Ordinary People, which mm. is, you know, it's, it's a bit hit and miss, but no, Donald Sutherland's good in it. He made uh, Lions for Lambs most recently, which was a film about Afghanistan. I think his best work as a director, though, is Quiz Show from the 90s. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, film. with yes. Rafe Fiennes playing yes. Charles Van Doren, this yeah. kind of this creepy quiz show host, and that's yes. a very good film. 
comparison with Senna because it does take something which is inherently televisual and make yeah. it feel like it belongs on the big screen. If you're yeah. a fan of Frost Nixon, go and see Quiz Show because that's oh, the film to which it owes a big debt. So it chronicles the aftermath of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, just after the American Civil War has finished, and the resulting trial. In particular, it focuses around the story of ex-soldier turned lawyer, uh, played by James McAvoy, who is defending the only woman tried for the conspiracy, this woman called Mary Surratt, who is played by Robin Wright, formerly Robin Wright Penn, because she was married to Sean Penn, but then they fell out. Um, it raises a number of interesting issues, because it's about the right to a fair trial, and whether or not the kind of the constitution should be upheld even kind of in a time of war or crisis it's also to some extent about the freedom of the press which kind of links back to redford's acting work in all the president's men which is still an absolutely fantastic piece of work and there's a, a kind of small commentary in it about the role of women in society and about the victimization which again links back to as if i am not there in the end, it is a little bit televisual in the sense that it's the sort of film you you could easily show in a history class at two o'clock in the afternoon and think and then discuss the issues about. And I think in the end, it probably will find its life on TV or DVD. But I think it's a very admirable achievement, not in a sense of admirable failure, but just it's admirable. Yeah. And I think Redford's a good, solid, workmanlike director who knows how to do human drama in a believable way. So if you can catch it, I would go and see it. Right. And finally, A Separation. Which is the film of the week, um, <laughs> well, sort of co-film of the week with The Conspirator. It's an Iranian drama directed by, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Asghar Fahadi. This is showing at the Tyneside. And uh, the story follows uh, a warring couple in Iran uh, where the mother and daughter want to, to leave Iran for various reasons, but the father wants to stay because his elderly father is has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he's kind of struggling to take care of him. The mother files a request for a divorce, but it's turned down, so she moves back in with her parents, and then we focus on the relationship between these two estranged individuals. And here's the thing. In a week in which Western cinema is kind of, it's putting it is arguing its case through stupid misogynist action movies and a slightly disappointing comedy. Like Redford's film, this shows us how good cinema can be when it's done properly and how convincing drama should be done. It's a very sensitive treatment of three-dimensional characters. You kind of stay in the zone with them through all the strange developments that go on because they do feel genuine and the issues are very close. It's miles better than The Squid and the Whale, which is Noah Baumbach's film that tackled a similar issue. There have been comparisons made with Kramer versus Kramer, you know, with Dustin Hoffman and yeah. Meryl Streep and there's that uh, great scene at the end of Kramer versus Kramer, which I won't spoil. I think in the end that comparison is slightly misleading, but but there is the, the common link about sort of seeing the world through the eyes of a child and kind of understanding you know, about divorce and separation. Obviously, there's religion involved, so it's it is art house, but it's a very interesting, stylishly directed film with proper characters, and you should definitely see it. Right. So three and a half good films. Yeah, I think that you no know, separation and. Um, conspirator of films of the week i think larry crown is it's going to be okay but not yeah. much more than okay and as if i am not there is good but tough yes right and the less said about the other one the better <laughs> i think we've probably done that one yes, I yeah. right i promise when we do the top yes. 10 next week i'll be brief and there are some more crackers uh, coming out uh, this summer the captain america at the end of july and uh, of course harry potter Yes, that's in two weeks' time, I think. So. Can't wait. Yes. yes. Um, I actually can't wait to go and see it, actually. Why don't we go together? <laughs> Why not? Yes. yes. Right, let's go out with... Um, oh, we'll have some Avril Huntley. Bye-bye. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.